I found myself living in a country where if I was caught without a mask on, on the tube, I would be faced with an armed police officer confronting me for that situation. That's not a country I want to be in. I don't want to be in a country where you force people to cover their faces, even if it works, right? You know, you persuade people to. You don't force them to. I just think that's fundamentally wrong. And the fact that we lost that principle is actually more important than the fact they didn't work. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Dr. Claire Craig, a consultant pathologist who has carried out extensive research into the COVID-19 pandemic. Claire is co-chair of the Health Advisory and Recovery Team, or HEART, a group of highly qualified UK doctors, scientists and other experts who share concerns about the handling of the pandemic. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Dr. Claire Craig, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for having me, Lee. You've done a lot of work related to the pandemics and the lockdowns. I was hoping we could start by exploring some of that. You, you gave a talk recently entitled, or, or talking about the three major myths that led to lockdown. Could you tell us a bit about what those myths are and how they played out? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, myths, the word myth, um, obviously, it comes with sort of connotations that people were very very wrong and so it's you know it's a difficult world to use but there's definitely a story about beliefs within what's happened and um the some of some of those beliefs stem right back 150 years back to the arguments we had between people who were proponents of germ theory so the idea that everything was spread by bacteria or viruses and the people who believed that diseases were spread through the air as miasma and even though that has been, you know, that has been resolved, that issue, for 150 years, there were times when I was talking about the fact the virus was airborne and people would um, say to me, do you not believe in germ theory? So there's, you know, once you get that sort of politics in science, it becomes really damaging because people lose nuance and they, and they become polarised and you sort of can't actually get to something that's reasonable and truthful. And I think that's what we saw with COVID. So one of the myths was that it, that it was spread through droplets only, that it was close contact transmission that was the issue. And this was a really strongly held belief. And it was, um, you know, the whole of the sort of medical community were behind this belief, including me at the time. We all thought that that was how infectious diseases spread. And there were people who were experts in air pollution and the physics of how things move through the air who were shouting as loudly as they could to say, you've got this wrong, it can spread much, much further. And they were right. But they had to fight so hard to be heard. They were accused of spreading misinformation by the WHO. Um, and they, it, was, it took until late December 2021 before the WHO said, actually, it can spread through aerosols over long distances. And that changes the entire story. But we had, at that point, had almost two years of people telling us it was only spread through close contact. And that was ingrained. And so you can't just say, oh, actually, it spreads a long distance through the air, and people then adopt that new belief. So we're still stuck in this old belief system. And, of course, that belief system was what 
one-way systems and the two-metre distancing and all of that was predicated on this idea that it was all close contact transmission. Now, I'm not saying that close contact transmission didn't happen, right? Because you've obviously got higher dosages the nearer you are to a person who's emitting a virus. But the people who are emitting the virus uh, tend to be people who are sick because they produce huge amounts of virus. And so proportionately, that's where the virus is coming from. And that's why most transmission happened in households, because that's where sick people were. Um, and obviously, we've seen chains of transmission. You know, there are absolutely situations where you can track how people have spread it one to another through a chain of transmission. But the point is that if a proportion of the disease is being spread a long distance through the air, you can't control it with a lockdown because it's going to happen anyway. And, and what we saw was that people who are sick would have been at home in bed overnight emitting tens of millions of virus particles into the air. And they don't just disappear. And, and so, you know, that air will have gone out the window and in a city it will go up in the air currents around a building until it hits the... Um, air currents at the top of the building and then come back down again but it circulates it doesn't just waft away and opening a window doesn't doesn't make things disappear and especially not in the night when there's no uv light around to to get rid of the virus um so that is likely how it really transmitted and that is why we've seen such rapid spread through a population so the modeling which was based on close close contact the modelling was estimating that there would be a peak in June, July of 2020 because it would take that long to reach everywhere. Whereas what we actually saw was it was pretty much everywhere, pretty much from the off. Mm. And, um, and that's because it was in the air. And that, you know, that, that's what the big difference is. But we've, we're still dealing with those models. You know, people haven't given those up and said, actually, this isn't, this isn't how it's spread, even though we know it's spread through aerosols. Everybody, they'll talk about that. They'll say it's spread through aerosols, but haven't absorbed the full implications of what that means. Um, and yeah, so that, that was one of the myths. Another myth was that everybody was susceptible. So the original models were based on 85% of the population having an infection. So it was this concept of it not being a wave, but a tsunami that would just keep on going unless we intervened and all locked down. And, and there were, Neil Ferguson's team also produced a model of what they foresaw unlocking to look like. So they anticipated that when we relax restrictions, we'd immediately see an uptick because, this, of course, we've immediately got more close contact. And that when they'd come a point where they'd said, right, that, that's our tipping point for ICU capacity, we'll lock down again, and, and they were going to close universities and schools and have this sort of unlock, lock, unlock, lock until we could get a vaccine. That was what was being proposed. And, of course, we never saw a rebound. There was never that rebound when we released restrictions anywhere. And that's because what we were seeing with each wave is a virus that was working its way through a population. Um, and I feel like I need to use the term that was so um, attacked at the beginning, which is herd immunity. So herd immunity is this concept that within the community, you can get to a point where a virus is finding it harder to find someone else who's susceptible. And as it approaches that point, 
it will slow, the wave will slow and then it will peak and then it will fall until it's eventually found all it's going to find and then you don't see that variant again. So because the people who've had it are then immune to it, the virus is trying to find more people. That's right, that's right. So it's just run out of people to go for. Now, when you're modelling it across the whole population, you get this tsunami. But what we actually saw in real life is that only a fraction of the population were susceptible in each, to each variant. And so then everyone else is just a bystander. And, and it's spreading through that fraction. And it peaks and it falls and it doesn't rebound. And we've seen that again and again in wave after wave all across the world, you know, which is you can you can kind of have a feel for how big a COVID wave is going to be pre and post Omicron. I mean, there are differences. Omicron's quite different, but, you know, they all look about the same. There's nowhere where it went really out of hand. Um, and what we have seen is, say, in South America, they had much broader waves. Um, and you know, nearer to the equator, you get more broader waves, which is also what we saw with flu. So... With each variant, there is a fraction that will become susceptible. It's not everybody who's susceptible, and we shouldn't treat it as if everybody's susceptible. And the, the flip side of that is, if you've got virus everywhere in the air, everyone's going to be exposed. And if you are one of the people who are susceptible, at some point you're going to be exposed. And if you change your behaviour, you might be able to postpone that point. You know, you might be able to say, well, I didn't go to that party. But because it's going to work its way through that population of susceptible people, it's very likely that by the end of that wave, it will have found you. So, you know, you can postpone it a bit. You can postpone it for a few weeks, but you're not going to hide from it forever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe that's not entirely true in that with herd immunity, the whole point is that the herd can protect each other. So if you completely manage to hide away from the world, then maybe you would be one of the lucky ones and other people would bear the brunt of it. But, the, you know, for the vast majority of cases, that's just not true. Um, so that was the susceptibility myth. And then the third big myth was the myth of asymptomatic spread. So there is, a, there is evidence that people in the incubation period, so before developing symptoms, there's a day or so where people can be infectious. And, and, and they, you know, there's absolutely been chains of transmission, and we've seen that happen. But I'm talking about people who never have symptoms, because that's quite a different concept. You know, these are people who the only reason we're saying that they have an infection is a test result, and because they've never had symptoms. So that, you know, if, you were, if we didn't have testing, we wouldn't think they had an infection. So then the question has to be, well, are these people ever infectious? You know, we can find virus in their airway, but are they infectious? And that question, you'd think, must have been answered early on because the world was absolutely adamant that this was a really big issue. But it wasn't answered early on at all. And the evidence base that people who never had symptoms could spread disease was incredibly weak. And it was essentially had two components. One were... Um, places where they tested a lot. So, for example, there's a town in Italy called Vaux, and they tested everybody in the town and then tested them all again sort of as the wave progressed. And when you do medical tests, sometimes you get test errors, right? They're not perfect. And the number of people who were testing positive who never had symptoms fitted with the test error rate. And these people who never had symptoms, some of them had seen each other. 
And so they were literally saying that asymptomatic spread had been proven because somebody who had never had symptoms in a positive test result had been in contact with someone else who also never had symptoms and had a positive test result. Well, how is that the spread of an infection when nobody has had a symptom? That, that's, doesn't, that's not how we would define the spread of an infection. Um, and there was more than one like, a study that showed that type of thing. There were a few out of China as well as that one from Italy. And then there was an important study from Brunei where they had an outbreak in spring 2020 after people had been to a religious festival in Malaysia. And the people who came back from that festival had COVID. You know, there was a genuine outbreak. And there were two people who, in the, when they were sort of testing you know, the, all the contacts of the people who had come back. So once you sort of got into the chain, there were two people who didn't have symptoms and other people who they'd been in touch with who had a positive death result. One of those people had a mild cough for one day and one of them had a runny nose and a cough. That was a baby and the mum had a runny nose. So there, apparently in that one study, there was evidence of positive tests and symptoms but very, very mild. And really that was the, all that had been shown globally until more recently. And more recently, people have put a lot of weight on a study of a marine training camp in the States where they did tons of testing of these poor, poor young people who were um, isolated, made to wash their hands, masking. You know, it was a really horrible environment that they were forced to live in. And they were repeatedly tested, and they also did genetic testing. And what that meant was they could very accurately say who spread what to whom. There were two other papers that came out more recently. One of them was in 2021. It was a study of a marine training camp. And these poor trainee marines were made to um, wash their hands and I mean, be isolated and have wear masks. And you know, they were, had this really strict regime, and they had a lot of testing partly for this study, they didn't all get involved in the study. And they included genomic testing, so they could trace exactly where the virus had been from person to person. And they reported that they had found virus from all around America among these people that had come from all around America, so they could show that the genomes matched different outbreaks. Um, and they also showed some people got sick and got COVID, they had a bit of COVID in the study. But what they didn't show was that anybody who had no symptoms had shared virus with someone who got symptoms. So they claimed to have shown asymptomatic transmission in that they had people with no symptoms and virus, and they had people with symptoms and virus. But you know they should have been able to show that genomic link, and they didn't, which I just find really odd when they had all of that data. You know, If it was a clear-cut thing, I'm sure they would have just said, but there was a sort of missing link in that story. Um, and then the more, most recent paper was out of Japan, but it was actually a study from spring 2020. And it included, a, uh, it was a story of a party in Tokyo. Um, somebody come back from Wuhan and they had an outbreak of COVID. And that outbreak ended up spreading to a coastal town. And in that coastal town, a woman died. And she was in her 80s. And she was admitted to hospital with pneumonia like at the time of the Tokyo party, so before there was any COVID anywhere near where she lived. And she didn't test positive until after she was dead. And the health ministry was saying that we really don't think this was a COVID death, but obviously some people in the media were excitable about it and saying it was. 
Um, and so that is the only death that's ever been shown from asymptomatic transmission. So you know, the, the whole story is really, really weak, which just makes you think, well, where did it actually come from? Because it, it was so widely believed and just accepted. And, I, and so I've ended up digging into where it came from. And I have sort of two answers to that question. One goes back to 1910. So in 1910, there was a doctor called Charles Chapin, who was a public health officer in Providence in Rhode Island. And he was never a particularly powerful person in terms of his position, although he did head up for a year uh, the American Medical Association or something like that. But he was very powerful in terms of the impact that he had. So he wrote this book on public health that became the reference textbook on public health. And he, on the back of the whole germ theory arguments, was very, very passionate that all infectious diseases spread through close contact. And that was what his book was about. It was about close contact spread. He was sick of hearing about people talking about spread through the smells from the sewer. And he wanted rid of that idea. And he says this explicitly, you know, this is how we get rid of that idea. We're going to say it's all close contact transmission. And he was also a little bit, um, I think he was a little bit OCD. He, he, when you read what he writes about people's horrible saliva touching windowsills and touching things that he's going to touch. And I think that, that was definitely part of that story, that I think he was that kind of a personality. And I don't want to be really hard on him. You know, I don't think he was some kind of baddie. And I think that he probably did make a difference in terms of transmission of disease within hospital and the hospital setting. Um, so just doing simple things like spreading out the beds and, and they used to dip sheets into disinfectant and hang them around the patient. And, um, and this was also part of the belief that it would contain the dirty air. But he said he could tolerate that because it would remind the nurses and other people they were entering a, a different space and then they'd have to come out and wash their hands and that, that would help with the transmission and it probably did. So I'm not suggesting that he's a complete, you know, baddie, but he, he did over egg it and he said everything was spread only through touch and through droplets from the mouth that I'm, when I'm speaking to you, hitting your eyes and your mouth and going into you that way. And now obviously when you stop to think about that, you'd have to be very close to somebody for that to be a realistic means of transmission. But that is what, you know, that's what everybody believed. That went from that textbook into what everybody believed about how infectious disease is transmitted. And in his own book, he says that, you know, influenza is a bit of a tricky one because it does spread incredibly quickly. And the way to explain that must be that there are lots and lots of people who've got it asymptomatically, who are spreading it to other people. And so he had this whole thing around asymptomatic spread as well, that, he, that the evidence for it is, was incredibly weak. And it was based partly on the typhoid Mary story, which was, you know, that was, everyone knew that at that point. Um, but the thing about the typhoid Mary story is that that, particular typhoid is spread by a bacteria that can hide away from the immune system. So it's not like other infections. It, you know, you can't just extrapolate from that to every other infection has an asymptomatic component. Um, and he, when he, he writes about asymptomatic spreads, he sort of throws in a bit of mild disease because, you know, he hasn't got the evidence for it being asymptomatic at all. 
some of the evidence that he was trying to use was talking about people at the end of their infection and saying that you could still find, say, diphtheria in someone who's, this is bacterial, but diphtheria in someone who'd had diphtheria, and therefore they could be spreading it to people. But, you know, you discharge them from the hospital, they go home, they don't give it to anyone that they live with or interact with, but they could be spreading it to other people. <laughs> and, and he even has a paragraph in his book saying, it's worth being very, very cautious about this because, you know, he's made a lot of sweeping statements and so he says so. You know, he says this is just a hypothesis and, you know, we have to learn. But we sort of didn't. We just hung on to those ideas for all of this time. And um, he, the, the other side of the story, the other sort of second part I was going to tell you about, I think really began with PCR testing. So from the late 80s, early 90s, we developed this type of testing in the laboratories where we could detect tiny numbers of viruses or even single numbers of viruses. And so what that me means is that prior to that stage, we would diagnose someone as having an infection based on like, antibodies afterwards and, you know, or, you know, large amounts of virus. And then at this point, we start to diagnose people who literally have breathed contaminated air. And, and that sort of, when that, you get to that situation, you're, you're redefining the word infection, incidentally. So the word infection doesn't have a very strict definition. And, you know, you, you could say, well, it, it's somebody who's very sick with an illness. You think, well, okay, everybody would agree that was an infection. Or you could say, well, it was somebody who wasn't sick, but they were infectious. And we're like, yeah, okay, yeah, actually, if they're going to be sick and they're infectious, okay, that can be an infection. Um, but we've gone a sort of step before that and said, well, these are people who are never infectious. And they've just got some virus in the air, inside their body, but not inside their body. You know, so we've got, when we're breathing in and out through our lungs, in some ways that's external to us. Obviously it's inside us, but it's not actually entered through a cell. It's just air. And, and these, you can pick up virus in the airway through this very sensitive testing and come up with this whole new science around asymptomatic viral infections and start to describe it as a phenomenon, which is what we saw. So if you look at the literature on asymptomatic um, respiratory infections, it starts to take off with PCR testing and then it goes absolutely crazy in 2020. Um, so I think looking at the economy now, it's in quite a state and we've seen some quite worrying public health data. In your opinion, were the lockdowns the right way to go? Uh, no, I, I really don't think they were. Um, and what we never had to do was legislate and make things illegal. You know, I think people, people were already behaving in a, a sort of lockdown-esque fashion well before anything was made illegal anyway. So that demonstrates it wasn't necessary. Um, but the, the way it was done, the length of time it was done for has been hugely damaging. And those people who were saying so at the time were being accused of being granny killers and accused of prioritising money, you know, wealth over health, which is just so short-sighted because, of course, a poor country is going to have poor health. You know, when you've got money, you can spend it 
making sure that everybody's healthy, but it's a very, very tight correlation between the wealth of a country and the health of a country. And so if we've made ourselves poorer, we will have killed grannies. You know, that, that it's just silly to pretend that money is endless and that it doesn't have an impact on people's lives. Of course it does. And, you know, I think we, we are going to see the, the harm play out over... It's like a slow-motion car crash, isn't it? You know, you know it was going to happen. We said it was going to happen. And now we're experiencing all of the pain that that entails. Um, and I don't think it's over by any means. So the amount of money that was spent was extraordinary and, and is going to impact on my children's lives in a, you know, in a massive way. And it was, it was incredibly unjust to have done that to them. What are your thoughts on some of the major interventions that happened? For example, the wearing of masks and the vaccines themselves. Were, were they effective or ineffective? So, um, let's take masks first of all. If you remember, of course, everybody agreed they were ineffective for some time. And then they suddenly, globally, in lockstep, everybody agreed that that's what we had to do. And um, the, there was a time when I sewed masks myself, right? So I, I was scared at the beginning. And um, when we were told we had to wear masks, by then I was already a bit skeptical, but I believed the droplet close contact story. You know, I hadn't read all about this aerosol stuff because the people's voices were being suppressed at the time. And with the droplet story, it sort of makes sense that it, a mask would have an impact because droplets are massive and it would but it wasn't being spread through droplets. It was being spread through massive amounts of aerosols. And the vast majority of the virus that comes out is in particles, in aerosols that are way smaller than droplets. And so a mask has no impact. And, you know, we, we, the evidence that people like to use to say they worked was based partly on modelling. So they would sort of decide how much they thought it would work and then do a study showing what impact that would have on spread if it did work, and then say they worked. Like, hang on a minute, that, that, that's a, you know, you started with that assumption, and now you're just saying you've proved the assumption, but you haven't proven anything. Um, and then also studies in laboratories where there are machines that can measure the amount of virus um, by getting people to breathe into this sort of cone-shaped device with and without masks and with and without coughing, and you, know, you can control things quite accurately. But what you can't control is how much air is going behind the person. And so when you've got a mask on, it might well reduce what's coming out in front. But if it's still coming out, it's still coming out. So, you know, you might reduce the dosage of somebody when you're talking to them and then they walk past you and then they've breathed it all in anyway. So you haven't actually, you know, you haven't really stopped it in the way that they've betrayed. And we've now had the Cochrane collaboration who are the kind of global leaders in evidence-based medicine who have collated all of the evidence on it and said look it doesn't work so they don't work and yet in America they're still force masking two-year-olds and I mean that that is just child abuse and it's day on day on day and they're still doing it now and I find that really upsetting and what, one of the things about masking that was very, very wrong, was that the mask, the pro-mask people used this term, the precautionary principle, and turned it on its head. So what it means normally is that you don't go and implement a policy if you don't know for sure that it's going to benefit people overall, because 
there are some impacts, negative impacts, you won't have thought of. You won't, you, know, you won't see them until you've implemented it. And there are others that are very hard to measure. And so you might be causing more harm than good. So you have to be very, very certain on that balance before you implement a policy. And they took this idea, the precautionary principle, and turned it on its head and said, well, you know, we really ought to do this because it would be so dangerous not to. And, and kept repeating this idea when, in actual fact, if we take its original meaning, there absolutely were harms that people didn't foresee. And we have seen children whose language development has been harmed because they haven't been able to see people's mouths moving and, and that's how they learn. It's like a critical part of their learning. Younger children whose neurodevelopment's been harmed because they need to see facial expressions and they've been living in a sea of masks in a faceless, smileless society. And for adults as well, you know, the idea that we don't need to see each other's faces in order to interact in a healthy way in our society is just crazy. And, and if you think about our sort of, our deep down kind of fear of strangers that we all have, and that we manage by checking people out, right? And if all you can see is their eyes, it's much, much harder to do that when you can just see that they're relaxed, they're not angry, they're not about to attack you. I mean, this is, you know, this is our basic biology. It's, I'm, not, I'm not scared of strangers. I think most of them are brilliant, but, but you know, that is just the sort of thought process our brain has to go through. We made it really hard for people. And there's one adult I know who was having night terrors from living in a mass society and was waking up like screaming and you know this was just a perfectly healthy happy guy but it really badly affected him and he won't talk about that in public um, and you see that's the part of the problem isn't it some of these effects people didn't complain about very much because of the atmosphere and then of course you have deaf people who couldn't lip read you know there's all of these serious harms that were just brushed aside it's just a mask and it really isn't just a mask and in terms of the vaccines, in terms of masking still, as well as the fact that it didn't work and it caused harm, let's say it did work, just you know, as a, an idea. If it did work, I still would have objected because I found myself living in a country where if I was caught without a mask on, on the tube, I would be faced with an armed police officer confronting me for that situation. That's not a country I want to be in. I don't want to be in a country where you force people to cover their faces, even if it works, right? You know, you persuade people to. You don't force them to. I just think that's fundamentally wrong. And the fact that we lost that principle is actually more important than the fact they didn't work. And I think the same applies for the vaccines, that we've got so caught up in the arguments about how effective, how safe were they, that we've forgotten some of the major, major principles that were thrown away. So, for example, the regulators knew that there were large swathes of the population who could only have had negligible benefit from having them. Like they just, at, at best, didn't benefit would be negligible. And yet, they approved their use even though they were novel and had no long-term safety data. Now, even if they had worked and turned out to be safe, that was wrong. You mustn't do that. Um, and furthermore, we got to a stage where the government were using coercion and eventually mandates to get people to take a drug. 
And that is wrong, regardless of how effective and safe it is. You, you must not you know, override people's bodily autonomy and interfere with informed consent when you are making decisions about what goes into somebody's body. Those, you know, those, those are wrong. Um, but going on to, well, did it work? Um, you know, I think in actual fact, there's more than one measure of it working, right? So there's, you know, did it stop infections? And I can think pretty confidently say, no, it didn't stop infections. You can look at the trajectory um, in Europe and in the States, and the delta wave is the same size wave as the previous waves in terms of hospitalizations, which is a measure that's fair, that hasn't changed over time. That's not true here. And I think a lot of people in the UK got quite focused on UK data, which is actually quite an outlier in terms of the delta wave. Um, but I don't think we should focus on one country. You know, this was global and there was no difference in the delta wave in the US and the Europe. So I don't think it affected infections. Did it affect hospitalizations and deaths? I think that's a much harder question to answer. Um, I think there are, there is evidence that any impact it was having changed over time. And so you think, well, that does imply that it was having an impact for it to then lose that impact over time. But the thing is that all of the measures of it are highly dependent on studies that have inherent bias in them. So it's a bit like having a huge fat marker pen drawing a line about how effective it was. And you don't really know, it's like a big cloud of, you know, you don't, you could have got an idea. It's somewhere between here and here, but I can't really tell you which it was. And the bottom of that is it wasn't very effective. And when you look across the world at the total accumulated COVID deaths, and you say, well, if the vaccines were effective, what would we see? We'd, we'd see deaths accumulating in 2020, and then that gradient of global deaths should come down. And that did for Omicron. So we had this sort of pre-Omicron rise, and then it went more shallowly once Omicron arrived. And Omicron is only like half as lethal. So a vaccine that was made the infection half as lethal should have had the same effect. But it just didn't. The gradient just carries on as if it wasn't impacting on deaths. And so, you know, that I find that really troubling, that particular data point. But as I said, I, find, I think there's grey area on that. Um, and in terms of was it safe? Well, we're now in a situation where there's pretty good evidence that people who had it are more likely to be infected than people who didn't. And that, that could play out in a really nasty way, potentially. We don't, you know, it hasn't yet, um, but it has interfered with the immune system and it has changed how people respond to the virus um, in terms of because people have had repeated injections and because the, nobody had an off button, nobody measured when it would switch off. It means they've been exposed a long, long time to the spike protein and some of those people have started to treat spike protein as something they shouldn't attack. So if you, um, your immune system learns not to attack you and it learns that from birth, well, from early childhood, you learn what you look like and you won't attack that. But it also has to learn not to attack food um, because, you know, that, just, that causes problems, you get allergies. And so 
there are antibodies it can produce to say, oh no, that's the kind of thing we ignore, antibodies, those type of antibodies. And it's those antibodies that, that say ignore this that people have now got to the spike, having had injection after injection and having had their body turned into fact spike factories for months on end, which, you know, it hasn't been a huge problem yet. But that's not what we were meant to be doing to people and that, that is an issue and we don't know how that will play out. Um, and we do know that there are people who've absolutely been injured by these vaccines. Um, it's hard to put an exact number on it. And it's hard partly because the data has not been forthcoming. And some of the data is difficult to get, you know, it's not all easy to get. Um, and, and it has started to come out bit by bit. And we've seen a massive, massive rise in working age people who are not working because they declare themselves long-term sick. So these are surveys where people ask, why aren't you working? It's not that they're claiming benefit. They say, I'm not working because I am sick. And th those rises happened in the US and in the UK with the vaccine rollout. Um, and so, you know, we'd had plenty of COVID up until that point without really seeing much of a change in disability numbers. Um, and then the vaccines came and we had this massive spike. And within that spike, there are different conditions you know I'm sure you could break it down and, and find some other things that weren't all vaccine related but the timing of it is really concerning and suggests that this was much more harmful than other people have kind of really given credit to you know everybody was so determined it would be rare whatever rare means um, or they'd focus very hard on myocarditis which has, there was very good evidence of and which is relatively rare in terms of the vaccine injuries we've seen. Um, and then not focus on some of the things which are a bit harder to measure um, or things that are not as clear cut diagnostically. So, you know, if you've got something that's very rare and it happens more often after a new drug comes out, it's quite easy to say, well, that looks like that caused it. But if you've got something that's really common, like a heart attack, and the numbers go up, like this gets hidden in the noise you know it's much much harder to pick it out as being something that you can relate causally to it um and you know that's the situation we're in i think some of the things that the vaccine caused some of it caused common symptoms and 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 you know it becomes very very hard to measure but but it has caused harm and we shouldn't be surprised it caused harm because rushed vaccines cause harm. You know, we have a history of rushed vaccines causing harm. The last one was 2009, when we had the swine flu pandemic and a vaccine called Pandemrix was rushed out and caused narcolepsy in teenagers, which meant that they would become suddenly paralyzed or fall asleep out of the blue, which is just incredibly disabling, lifelong. Some of them committed suicide, it was, it was horrible. And it happened because it was rushed out and it took years to get to the bottom of it in terms of the data and you know, how many people were affected. Um, and it wasn't really until 2020, which was 10 years later, that Public Health England managed to put a, a proper number on it and said that their previous number had been quite a big underestimate. Um, so a rushed vaccine. And then the whole principle of vaccination is that you take something that's potentially dangerous and you make it inert either by killing it completely or removing the bit that's going to be cause the most harm so you, you know you take the bit that's going to train up the immune system without causing the disease 
But what we've done here is we've taken the most dangerous part of the virus and used that. And I mean, I've never really, I've never really had anyone explain to me how that wasn't a stupid thing to do, like fundamentally stupid. So the, the reasoning for doing it was this idea that if you want to stop an infection as opposed to death or hospitalization, if you want to stop an infection, you can just stop the virus entering the cell. And the spike protein's function is to get into a cell. So if we can get an immune response to that, then it won't be able to get in. Okay. Um, it, I mean, it didn't work. You know, the infection numbers haven't really been affected. Um, and, and besides which, we're now injecting into people the code to say, make the spike protein. And we're injecting it into them in lipid nanoparticles, so that little bubbles of lipid, which were originally designed for gene therapy. So when you've got somebody with a gene abnormality, you want to get the gene all around their body into all of their organs. So this, these little lipid nanoparticles are designed to go everywhere. And we were injecting this spike instruction into people in this thing that's going to go everywhere. Um, and the lipid, it gets it into a cell. So, you know, you're trying to get the immune response because you think, well, we don't want this in the cells. And now we're injecting it into people and getting it into, into, made in their cells in the first place. Um, so that's another reason. The lipid nanoparticles themselves, they gave up on the idea of using them for gene therapy because for gene therapy, you need to be repeatedly injected um, because you still don't have the gene yet. It's only going to last so long. So what they found is that repeated injections of these lipid nanoparticles were harmful. So they said, okay, this technology is not going to work for this. What, what could we use it for? Well, we could use it for vaccines, was the idea. And that idea was based on the idea that you would use it once, not four, five, six times. Because we know that these lipid nanoparticles are dangerous if you give them repeatedly, and yet that's what we're doing. And um, we also knew that the adenovirus that AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson used caused thrombosis problems when it had been used in vaccines previously. And so that had been dumped as a technology and somehow reincarnated in the emergency, even though we knew it was going to cause problems with clotting. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it did cause problems with clotting. Another unusual feature of the pandemic was the communication of government information. So we had the kind of news several times per day telling us the number of deaths. And we had these like, government adverts that said things like, if you go out, you will spread it, people will die. Mm -hmm. Um, really quite a unique situation that we hadn't experienced before. What kind of effect do you feel this, this had on people? Um, I really think this was so dystopian. And um, the one thing I would say about the nudge unit that designed all of that stuff is they're really good at their job. <laughs> what they were doing was awful and unjustified and immoral, but they were really good at it. And the atmosphere that they managed to create was so dark. And I, you know, I tried to remember what it felt like at that time, but it was a, such a horrible, horrible atmosphere that was created by those emotive posters. And I, I, I really think it's wrong for 
governments to deliberately frighten the population. I don't think that is a good idea. You know, by all means, tell them things which are frightening, if that's what the situation is. But to actually deliberately amplify it the way they did. And, and they set out to do it as well. You know, they had that meeting where they decided that people didn't weren't scared enough for their personal safety. Um, people who probably, very reasonably, were prepared to, you know, abide by all of the regulations and do what they could, do their bit, as it were, um, and were scared potentially for their elderly relatives and were scared that the NHS might be overwhelmed, but thought, actually, it's probably not too much of a worry for me personally. And they were right. They were right. And they were made to feel scared personally. And the consequence of that was that people's fear levels were disproportionate to the problem. And you can't undo that very easily. Um, and there's um, a professor who has looked at COVID anxiety syndrome. So he sort of came up with that term and was looking at what happened with people and their levels of fear. And by summer of 2021, people were, 40% of people said they would not touch anything in public. And nearly a quarter of people were not going into public. Now, of course, it felt kind of normal by summer 2021, but we didn't see those people. They weren't there. So you didn't realise quite how much they were suffering. And one of the things that was particularly telling from his research was that um, the people who were worst affected by this anxiety were the younger age groups. You know, it was utterly disproportionate to the problem at hand. Older people were sort of, you know, able to take it more in their stride. But people in their 20s and 30s who perhaps some of them are, you know, particularly in their 20s, are already a bit lonely and then have been cut off and then have been frightened by all of these material they took it to heart in a way that is bound to be damaging, it's bound to be, and we've seen a mental health crisis as a result. Um, and, you know, the mental health problems don't just disappear, you know, they're, they're, they will affect people going on. One um, word that's got a lot more attention recently, that we, uh, in my kind of experience we never used to hear, but now it's everywhere, is myocarditis, um, which is inflammation of the heart. Um, do you feel there's a connection between myocarditis rates and the, the pandemic? Right. So um, myocarditis pre-COVID was a rare condition um, that could be caused by viruses or bacteria or toxins. Um, and respiratory viruses could cause it. You know, that was a, a known phenomenon. And what we saw when COVID arrived is that some of these other respiratory viruses sort of disappeared. And so they will have been myocarditis cases that were COVID associated. But the thing is that the rates of myocarditis we were seeing was the same as we saw previously. So there was no increase. So it was as if, you know, the ones that would have been caused by other respiratory infections were now being caused by COVID. And, and I think, you know, we don't have to be frightened about that situation. If it's the same rate as it ever was, nothing has changed. But what we did see was a massive rise um, with the vaccine rollout in the number of people who had myocarditis. And some of those people may have had the vaccine, not had myocarditis, got COVID 
and then had myocarditis. Because we have seen a lot more reports of post-COVID myocarditis in the post-vaccine era than in the pre-vaccine era. And when you just look at the, you know, the numbers from across the world, wherever, whenever it's been reported on how the num total numbers have changed, it was at previous levels and then it jumps up with the vaccine rollout. So the, the, the cause, we don't actually, like exactly how it's working, we don't actually know. But some of the previous viruses have caused it by teaching the immune system. So when the immune system's attacking the virus, it learns to attack sort of something that looks a bit like something in your heart. And so then it will attack your heart because it's been charged up to attack something that is foreign and then it sort of gets it a bit wrong in a few people. So that could be a mechanism. And you could see how a vaccine might prime somebody's immune system to learn that lesson. And then when they see COVID, they're activated again and then that's when they might get the myocarditis. But actually, also, there's also evidence of spike in the heart itself. And of course, if you've got spike expression in the heart, the immune system is going to attack it because it is foreign. So it might be that. And we've also had, there was a study of two teenagers who died of myocarditis. And at post-mortem, they had dead heart cells. And it looked like a particular kind of um, cell death that you see with very high levels of adrenaline. Um, and, and I think that that could well be an important finding because we've seen people collapsing on the football pitch. We've seen people collapsing in front of the TV cameras, you know, comedians and newsreaders. And obviously when, you know, when you've got a camera pointed at you, you're more likely to capture it. So there, it might be a bit of a bias there. But I think the idea that the adrenaline is, is related to some of these heart problems needs investigating. There's been quite a lot of talk as well about excess death figures. Um, how, how should people view this? Is it something they should be concerned about? Yeah, I think, you know, if, if we have too many deaths in our society, that should be a concern for everybody. And I think, you know, it was right to be concerned when people were dying in 2020. It's right to be concerned when people are dying now. You know, if you're going to pay so much attention to worry about pe extra people dying then, mm. why wouldn't you do so now? And um, what we've seen, what we've seen recently is that there was an increase in the number of people dying. So actually, if we go right back to the beginning, we have the wave of COVID, and then we have a period afterwards where there's not so much death because people have just died and they, there's, you know, people who would have been dying are already dead. And we saw that again after January 2021, that like, went below expected levels for a time. But then it turned a corner and started to rise. And when it turned that corner was with the vaccine rollout and it started to rise. And we had a period, you know, it, just, it just continued and it continued in young people as well as old. Um, and we did have a quiet winter of deaths in 21 to 22. Um, and the thing is that the levels of deaths in a winter vary enormously. So trying to get the right level for what, how many there should have been is, you know, it, it's not as accurate. Um, and so we had a quiet winter. So there's this period then where you think, well, we didn't have an excess death problem then. But that's a really, I think it, it, it comes down to the fact that it's hard to, to guess what should have happened and then the excess death returns afterwards. And what the, what's critical for me 
is that a lot of people have said, well, of course we've got more deaths because we've got the baby booming generation coming through, getting to that age. We're bound to see it as the population's ageing. And of course that's true. But what we should see after a whole load of COVID deaths is fewer deaths, not more. And we have not seen a rise in deaths where there's a mention of Alzheimer's disease or there's a mention of Parkinson's disease and only really a tiny rise in this country in people with cancer. These are cardiovascular deaths. They're all cardiovascular deaths. So you have to start thinking, well, this is not a general aging population issue. These are cardiovascular deaths and deaths in the young. And we've seen it also in Singapore. So the interesting thing about Singapore is that they didn't really have any COVID until September 2021. And they haven't published their data on a monthly basis or a weekly basis, but they published all of 2021. And they had a significant number of excess cardiovascular deaths before they'd had any COVID at all. So, you know, these are when they had had the massive vaccination programme. So that's an important data point, really, because people think it's a COVID-related problem. And it might be partly, right? You know, things are often not black and white. And it could be that COVID contributes in some way as well. And, and in fact, in autumn of 2020, before the vaccines, we were already seeing excess deaths in the young, not in the old, but in the young, which could have been kind of post-lockdown. It could have been psychological stress from lockdown, which leads to heart disease. And it, or it could have been that COVID itself was having an impact on deaths. You know, so I'm not saying it's not 100% not COVID, but the level that it could possibly be COVID doesn't fit with what we're seeing. And we've, and we've seen it in countries that didn't really have COVID, like Singapore. And we've seen it in Australia, when similarly they hadn't really had COVID. What we also saw in Australia was that in... I was going to say summer, but of course it's not their summer. So in like June, July of 2021, um, mid-massive rollout, their hospitals were full. And their health officials were complaining about how they had all these ambulance calls for cardiac arrests and they could, didn't know why. And, well, we know why. <laughs> and, you know, we've also seen a massive rise in cardiac arrests at the same time, despite having opposite seasons for these things. And, you know, these things, are, it's quite clear that the timing of all of these things coincides with the vaccine rollout. And, you know, we've had now had also pathology reports showing the harm of the spike protein that, you know, that has been caused in these vaccine-related deaths. And, and the utter denial that this is an issue um, is just ridiculous. It, it's just ridiculous and dangerous. And the... It's, it, the idea that it can be entirely swept under the carpet is just for the birds. And I think the, the way it has, the data has not been released and the way people have refused to confront the issue has caused immense harm or, or might yet cause immense harm because people, it makes people angry and it makes them lose their trust and it makes them wonder why they're hiding it. And, you know, that, that has potential. It needs to be handled really carefully. And, and it needs to be, the people need to start addressing it now because everybody knows what's gone on and to have the politicians so out of touch with the general public is really dangerous, I think. Recent figures from the Office for National Statistics say that in the last six months, 50% of people had COVID. I think a lot of people maybe find that a bit difficult to believe. 
what are your thoughts on those those figures? Yeah, so I I have um, challenged what the ONS has been saying for really a long time. Um, and the thing is, actually, you know, the work they're doing is really important and it could be really valuable. So they, what they do is a random testing of the population. So you kind of get a measure of what's going on in terms of COVID across the whole population. You can see it in different age groups and you can see when things begin to rise and it should be able to act as a sort of early warning system for hospitals if something's coming. But in reality, it was set up in a way that was not designed to be accurate enough. So they could have said, well, you know, why don't we test for people who've got symptoms and who are at the level at which they are infectious? And that will give us a measure of how infectious our population is, which is an important measure. And they didn't do that. They decided to measure anything at all they could find. So they, it was the same issue of, you know, if you've got one viral particle in your airway, you were counted as being an infection on the survey. And they even did a brilliant piece of work where they went retrospectively through their data and said, well, why don't we find out at what level of test result and how strong a test result means that people were spreading it within their households? Because they would test a whole household. And they said, well, we've got these random positives where it's only ever one person and it never seems to spread. And we've got these other positives where it starts with one person and then other people in the house become positive as well. So they, they showed that there was a, you know, a level at which those test results would say this was an infectious person. And they never wrote it up as a report. It was just put out as a spreadsheet of results. And they never acted on it. And they just carried on just reporting anything they could find. And they also never sort of followed it up. So you think, well, if people are positive, but never have symptoms and never develop antibodies and never are infectious, why are you including them in your data? Um, and so, you know, there is definitely has been inaccurate throughout and it has overestimated everything throughout. But this latest claim that half of people have had it in the last six months does seem really extraordinary to me. And I don't know quite how they managed to find even that much virus just in people's airways. You know, it, it, it's such a huge number. And, and I, you know, think, well, maybe I'm living in a, in a bubble and, and, and it's just everyone else has had it and I just don't seem to know the right kind of people. So I asked, um, I asked my followers on Twitter what they thought about it. And there were a few people who said, that, yeah, 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 I've had it, and a few of my friends have had it. And a lot of people saying that, that they thought it sounded ridiculous and they didn't know people who'd had it. Quite a lot of people attacking me, saying this isn't very scientific. You know, I'm not trying to do a study here, I'm just kind of canvassing opinion. Um, and ultimately, nobody said, yeah, half the people I know have had it. And I, I'm just, I was just very, very dubious that that, that is an accurate measure. And changing the subject completely, but we're all talking about chat GPT and things recently, mm -hmm. and I know AI is a professional interest of yours. What kind of uh, difference can we expect to see in healthcare because of artificial intelligence in the near future? Um, so I think the first difference we're going to see isn't really artificial intelligence. It's what people are doing to prepare for it. So I think a lot of patients would assume that what the NHS knew about them was known in a sort of centralised way, and it hasn't been, it just hasn't been. You know, your GP records are in one place and your hospital records are in another, and often it's departmentalised as well. 
And so there have been attempts to bring people's data into sort of big data in a, uh, such that you have the records for the whole population in a way that can be looked at across the population. And that, even without artificial intelligence, that is quite exciting in terms of what it could do for patients. So, for example, um, using big data, you can find that a drug that's being used for one condition is helping to prevent another without you, you know, you wouldn't know that unless you could really look at huge numbers of people and see. Um, and the other way I think that artificial intelligence will have an impact <clears throat> is really on imaging things, which is, you know, that's my field more, is looking down a microscope and looking at images of cancer. But the image analysis side of it is actually very far progressed. Um, and has shown some really kind of exciting findings. One of them, for instance, just to show you the kinds of leaps of learning that it might provide for us, um, there was a study which was looking at images of the retina in the eye. Um, so these like photographs of people's retina. And they were trying to teach the AI to pick up on diabetic changes and other changes in the vessels of the eye. But they accidentally taught it whether or not the patient was male or female. And it could just look at an image of the retina and tell you if it was a male or female patient, yeah. And so the humans involved in that don't know how it was doing it. <laughs> and they might be able to figure out how it did it, but at the moment they just don't know how it was doing it. Um, but that's the sort of, the kind of additional offering that can come is that, you know, something unexpected like that, that, um, we haven't been able to see, sort of looking at it in a different way, because you know it's all wired up differently to the way we are. You might find these sort of new leaps of learning that that has real potential for for humankind in an exciting way. And I think um, there's a lot of fear around AI, and um, I think some of that is justified um, in terms of people's jobs being replaced. And I do think there's a real risk of that in medicine, particularly because doctors have become very protocol-driven in how they practice. And of course, if you become too protocol-driven, you are just an algorithm that could be replaced by a computer. And I think doctors have to find their role again in terms of that human contact, because that's what patients need and want, and, and it's important it's defended. Dr. Claire Cray, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much, Lee.